CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I've got a lot on the plate to talk about today, so I want to get right to the panel, starting with our regular AJC contributor on the Thursday shows, the editor, the boss himself, Kevin Riley of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Kevin, Bruce Springsteen, the boss, is back on Broadway right now, but you're back on Political Rewind. Thank goodness. How are you, Kevin? Uh, it's good. Uh, I'm doing well, Bill, and it's good to uh, be with you this morning. I'm, I hope I can live up to that uh, understated introduction. There, so. Oh, I think you could do it. Listen, I do want to mention one quick thing to you, Kevin. You and I often talk, uh, when we're not on the show, about the passage of time this year and how astonishingly fast it's been. Kevin, it's July 1st. We are now halfway through 2021. That's crazy. Well, yes, and more important, more important than that, perhaps, is that the new uh, voting law in Georgia goes into effect today. Yep. So uh, July yes, 1st, halfway through the year, and lots going on. Yeah, um, and we're going to talk about, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the voting law at some point on the show today. Um, we are also joined by uh, Donna Lowry. Uh, you all know Donna as the host of GPB-TV's Lawmakers, but many of you who live in North Georgia know that she was a longtime uh, reporter at WXIA, one of the top reporters in uh, television in Metro Atlanta. Donna, thank you for being with us. I'm thrilled to be with you, and I'm sorry that I can't be the boss, too, but I'm glad that Kevin is part of it. I, we all love Bruce Springsteen, so I'm glad to have that honor. <laughs> professor Audrey Haynes, professor of political science at the University of Georgia, and uh, the woman who started and oversees the applied politics program at UGA, which uh, prepares students in the political science department, and I guess, Audrey, beyond the political science department, for careers in politics, right? That is correct. We um, are an interdisciplinary program with the Grady School of Journalism and Mass Communication. So we have students who um, sort of straddle political comms um, and other types of journalistic activities, as well as political um, science and international affairs, um, and, and want to work in politics, uh, public affairs more broadly. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for joining us today, Audrey. It's great to have you back. Um, we're also joined um, by Professor Adrian Jones, who teaches courses in American politics, race, and law at Morehouse College. Uh, also, Adrian, we should tell people you are the director of the pre-law program at Morehouse, and it's very good to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and an honor to be here with uh, Kevin Riley, Donna Lowry, and Audrey Haynes. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, and there's a reason I saved you for last, uh, because just before we went on the air, and this is, in fact, apropos of the fact that the new voting law, p parts of the new voting law go into effect today, um, you had a bone to pick, you said, with an observation that's been made on Political Rewind as we've talked about voter ID um, over the past uh, months, really. And just earlier this week, one of our panelists said, gee, why shouldn't 
people have to have ID when they vote. They have to have ID when they go through the airport, when they want to uh, pay for uh, uh, something with a check. And you take issue with that. And so the stage is yours, Adrian. Indeed, I do take issue with that argument. Um, the argument over voter ID is really not about whether or not a person would show ID. Um, I think that the vast majority of people, including people like a Stacey Abrams, are in agreement with that. The problem of the argument is about whether or not you have limited the kinds of IDs that can be used to vote. So, you know, you can no longer use a utility bill, for example, in Georgia, which is a very easy way to show who you are and where you live and that you're eligible to vote um, in the area. Um, and under SB 202, of course, the ID requirement for even absentee votes has uh, been increased, which means, one, a threat of identity fraud. Um, you know, you're putting your information into the mail. But two, again, it is limiting people's access to the polls by um, using a mechanism that does not need to be so limited. Uh, the goal here should be to provide voter access, and therefore we want to keep the kinds of ID um, broad and not limit them so that voters can get to the polls. Well, Kevin, obviously, you know, even though the law goes into effect today, this is a conversation that's going to go on on our show and in your uh, news pages for a long time to come, because we now have, what, eight lawsuits challenging SB 202, including, of course, the fact that the United States Justice Depart Department of Justice filed a lawsuit uh, claiming that uh, the law is unconstitutional. So it's not like this conversation is ending just because July 1st signals the first day of some aspects of the law. You're right, Bill. Uh, Adrian, I have a question for you because I've heard this line of reasoning, and obviously you're well-versed in this topic, so I want to see, see what you'd make of it. So voting is a right, okay, uh, which is different than a privilege. Um, driving Getting a driver's license in, in Georgia is a privilege, right? It, it is done at the, with the approval of the government once you meet certain requirements. And now most people use, will have to use their driver's license as their form of ID. In other words, a privileged, a privilege that they have earned in order to gain the right to do something that um, they should have. It's a literally a birthright. Um, is that a valid? point of view, um, because, again, following your reasoning about uh, limiting the kind of ID that can be used. Oh, I didn't know you had finished. So I'm not objecting to the logic behind what you're saying. But what I have to emphasize is that the passage of voter ID and the kinds of laws that we've seen in 2021 are designed to limit access to the ballot. So, you know, these laws are not operating in a vacuum. We're looking to see who, who does not have the kinds of IDs that are going to be required under these strict ID laws. So, of course, you could argue that um, a driver's license is necessary, but um, it has never been necessary before this uh, introduction of voter ID laws, and those laws are designed to keep people from the polls. So while I guess an argument could be made that this is not an unreasonable requirement, I think that the posture in which this has been uh, executed or enforced or designed um, 
is very problematic, and it is pointedly designed to keep people, um, particularly black people, marginalized people, poor people, older people, uh, from the polls. Um, another argument the other day was that the state IDs are free. That's great, but I already have a utility bill. And for many years, this was acceptable. Um, th thank you for uh, uh, adding to the conversation that we had the other day, uh, Adrian, and giving us your point of view on this. Audrey, just one other quick note about this. Um, when we talk about uh, requiring these new forms of ID, uh, the AJC did a pretty good study of Mark Nisi, who covers elections uh, law for the newspaper. I think there's something like 200 plus thousand people, mostly African-Americans, who at this moment do not have the acceptable form of ID that will be required uh, under the new law, Audrey. Yes. And, and as Shakespeare would say, there's the rub. Because, you know, what we know about elections is that who turns out matters. And mobilization is often one of the very key components of any electoral strategy. What we learned during COVID is that when you make it easier for people to vote, oh, my God, lots of people vote. And guess what? We didn't really have very many problems. We didn't have fraud. You know, that's not something people really coordinate, except in a very small fraction of, of few cases. Um, so... I mean, again, it's like beating a dead horse. We've said it over and over and over again. If um, if the people who are making these laws want to make a justification that it is, you know, politically neutral and they're just trying to keep safe elections, they, you know, they need to look at the facts, and the facts don't support what they're saying generally. Okay, um, Donna, I want to. We're do, We're taking a couple of quick hits at the top of the show. In a couple minutes, we're yeah. really going to dig into this Sonny Purdue story uh, uh, about you know whether or not there should be an ethics investigation of him for a business deal that he made right before he became ag secretary. But but I want to talk to you briefly about a story that developed overnight that I know is of particular interest to you, and we've talked about it on this show. Nicole Hannah Jones. Uh, who was responsible for the 1619 project at the New York Times. I get that it's controversial, controversial, but it was one of the most masterful pieces of explanatory journalism that I think many of us have seen in years. She's a MacArthur Genius recipient. Um, she has been celebrated uh, for years for her work as an investigative reporter. She was hired by the University of North Carolina, as you know, but... The, pol the politics of the Board of Trustees was such there was pressure put on them to deny her tenure uh, because they didn't like but because the 1619 project is so controversial among uh, conservatives. But Donna, thank goodness the Board of Trustees met again and she is now being uh, granted tenure. Yeah, she's been granted tenure. And um, for I think all of us who are journalists, uh, this was a, um, a big win, a big sigh of relief in terms of, you know, the fact that freedom of journalism, freedom of academic freedom um, was um, because that they are allowing her to have this tenure. It is um, it, it, I feel that we have it back, at least to a certain degree. The, the fact that we even had to have this conversation over the past few months as the uh, UNC board tried to decide what to do. The fact that there was pressure coming in from a donor over whether or not she should be tenured. 
uh, is problematic. Uh, the the fact that the, the, her credentials did not speak from them for themselves. She, you know, as you mentioned, she's not only ha- um, has a MacArthur Genius Grant, but a Pulitzer, a Peabody. You know, her peers have all said that she is the uh, the type of journalist a journalist journalist that um, we should all aspire to be, that young people should aspire to want to be like. And yet, because there was a, a problem uh, allegedly with a donor who is, whose name is actually on the School of Journalism, that, um, that they were considering not giving her tenure in all of this. Um, it has been, I think, frustrating for a lot of us as journalists who are we're wondering whether we um, are going to feel hampered by a lot of what's going on in this world right now and what we do, not being able to tell the stories the way we want to tell them, the way they should be told about um, what's going on in our world for fear that something like this might happen down the road. So uh, I'm thrilled that uh, they finally made this decision. There is still the possibility she may not take the job. I hope she does. I hope that um, for the sake of the journalists who will come through the program uh, at, there at UNC, they will have a chance to hear from her. Uh, yeah, they may, people may not like everything with this, uh, the 1619 Project. I loved it. I, I loved the, the, the depth that she went into, everything that w- she focused on, but it, it's not for everybody to like. But I think we have to recognize the fact that she did it, that the newspaper was willing to put so much effort into it, and it's journalism the way we need to have journalism. You know, one thing, Bill, I would say about what she's accomplished, and I'm very interested to hear what our uh, panelists who work in academia think. She uh, has influenced the thinking of an entire nation. And I understand that maybe uh, she has many critics and people – uh, even historians have found some flaws in that in that work, but all of a sudden, the critical race theory is in the mainstream. It, it may not be particularly well understood in the mainstream. I think you could argue, but certainly, um, if a, the goal of a person who enters journalism and then enters academia, uh, if their goal is to um, bring uh, fresh thinking, new thinking, different thinking, challenging thoughts to the country. You, it's hard to think of someone lately who's done more than she has. Yeah, you know, and I would add, too, I mean, this has become a very political um, circus, in a sense. And in most cases, and Adrian will attest to this, I'm sure, um, tenure is a relatively very, um, very well-drawn-out process. It has all of these levels, and rarely do you see any kind of decision reach the heights that we see in this UNC decision. Most of the time, whatever the department itself wants to happen um, after reviewing someone's dossier happens. It goes up through the chain, and at the university level, it is confirmed. So this was obviously done because there was so much attention, as Donna mentioned. Um, And I would note that the vote itself was nine to four. And it was uh, it was uh, done, um, you know, in a closed door session, which, of course, is to protect privacy. And that is that is traditional. A lot of that is done, too. But I will say that one of the members of this primarily all white, all male, all older um, board of trustees said one of them had a quote after 
after that, speaking about her work and specifically um, the project reference, and he said, were there errors in it? Perhaps. But compared to the errors in history I learned and the lack of history I learned right here in North Carolina, it's devastating that we didn't learn things. I thought that is such an interesting quote because things like this raise awareness. And I will tell you, um, when I talk about political history, I said it's like looking at the desk in the school. You know, look at the top of the desk, you see one thing. Look at underneath the desk, you see other things. It's your, it's your frame of view. And this is 1619 frame things a little differently and added dimensions we don't usually talk about. So good that we're having this conversation. And it is rather sad that she had to go through what she went through and that the university did too. And it's sad for a lot of universities because this is something that is happening right now and it's not likely to go away. Adrian? The point of tenure is to protect someone like Jones from being fired in instances where she is spreading information that is controversial. Um, and to Donna's point about um, being able to be honest in terms of what we're reporting, this is what tenure is for. Um, and to Audrey's point about the fact that we haven't been getting this information. You know, ironically, critical race theory is designed to look at the law and race um, in an effort to address the fact that we need to take a look at that. Um, so it's very ironic that people are object to CRT when in fact the goal of CRT is to put us in a place where race is not the primary um, thing that we are talking about and worrying about all the time in the United States uh, based upon our history. It's also only taught in law schools primarily. Um, what's being taught in schools, like um, with Hannah Jones is history. It's our history, and it involves um, difficult issues with race. Um, so there are two ways in which this ties it's very directly into Georgia, the, the Nicole Hannah-Jones story. First of all, Kevin Riley's already uh, said it, uh, it, it, it uh, re the response uh, from many conservatives, including the Trump administration, when he was in office to the 1619 Project, was to suggest that it was a false narrative that was an effort to make white people feel guilty uh, about the, 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 the past, and it in fact, uh, it, it changed our understanding of history so that we couldn't celebrate American history. That was the conservative viewpoint. That then uh, overlapped with criticism of, the, of critical race theory, which, as we all know, has now become a Republican trope that's going to be used in the 2022 elections. Uh, Brian Kemp has uh, certainly argued against teaching of so-called critical race theory, uh, and other Republicans are going to campaign on this. But but there's another way, Kevin Riley, in which it, it affects uh, Georgia. And that's in an interview with Greg Bluestein, a brief interview with Greg Bluestein a couple of weeks back. Sonny Perdue, who from all accounts is still working behind the scenes to be named Chancellor of the University System of Georgia, in that conversation, he made reference to the fact that he's concerned about the, quote, culture of the university system right now, which is, of course, a veiled reference to, I think it's fair to say, and I doubt that he'd argue with this, to what he would say is the liberal teachings in the university system right now. And, and that's raised flags for a number of people as well, Kevin. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, besides the appearance of political cronyism and, and all that, um, that, you know, the way it would look, the University System of Georgia is arguably the state's most precious resource. I mean, when you look around the state and you, you see what is, you know, Georgia Tech, Georgia State, University of Georgia, for starters, among others, are accomplishing, um, it is arguably one of the most desirable jobs in all of academia. I mean, I would ask our academics to weigh in on that. And what we ought to be seeking is the very, very best person we can to make sure that one of the most important states in the union has the best possible higher education system as it faces unique challenges in the 21st century. And to me, that doesn't sound like a job for someone who's at the end of their political career and who has concerns about the culture of the university. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. you know, Adrian, we, we can only wonder, and look, let me say immediately, of course this is speculation, but it may not be completely uninformed speculation. One can only wonder how Sonny Perdue would have dealt with Nicole Hannah-Jones if, if this had happened in the university system of Georgia and how he as chancellor may have weighed in on whether he wanted, as a, as a loyal Trump advocate during his tenure as agriculture secretary, what might he have had to say about Nicole Hannah-Jones? I mean, he might have had to say that this was critical race theory uh, and that this could not be shared in the Georgia system. Um, you know, as we're having similar issues in local schools. The chancellor's job is critical. I mean, you're running the entire system there. And I think it's important that we have someone who is ethical and someone who is willing to engage in all of the kinds of truths that come out from, in particular, people who earn tenure, who are therefore able to talk about controversial and important topics. And, and I would just add to that in the fact that, you know, problematically, while Sonny Perdue has um, in his, you know, resume a lot of very positive things that he has done for the state, particularly, say, um, farmers in the state of Georgia, not to take any of that away. But while he served under the um, Trump administration, one of the problems that makes it difficult for him to segue into a university setting is the anti-science rhetoric, the removing of, for things, all of those things like uh, any relation to climate change on uh, the website, removing and forcing a lot of scientists to leave the, the department, um, you know, and this is, agriculture is a science. So some of those things are problematic. Um, and again, trying to be balanced while he's done, he's a very political animal and been very successful. Note, he was one of the few appointments that lasted during the entire Trump administration, and he's done a lot of positive things for Georgia. But as to his fit in the role as chancellor, it may not be the best fit. All right. I've got to get to uh, our first break of the show. But when we come back, there's another completely uh, separate story about Sonny Perdue that The Washington Post broke uh, recently, just the other day, uh, that we want to talk about. Uh, it may have some impact, maybe not on the considerations that are going on about whether he should be the next chancellor. And we'll get to that and a lot more when Political Rewind continues.
AJC editor Kevin Riley, GPB TV host Donna Lowry, uh, Morehouse's Adrian Jones, and UGA's Audrey Haynes join us today. A couple quick notes. Uh, first of all, and this really kind of uh, flows out of part of the conversation we had before the break, I I think that um, Sam Burmistaz, Amelia Brock, and I can't thank you enough for the number of notes you sent us about yesterday's really rich conversation. If you didn't hear it, I really suggest you go to the podcast or go online and find it. We, we wanted to take a look at, given all of the arguments about whether we should be exploring the way in which systemic racism has had a part in American history, the way in which uh, we have not as explored and dealt with slavery in the way that we ought to, we looked yesterday at how other countries, Germany most particularly, uh, dealt with the Holocaust and the atrocities committed uh, by the Nazis. We looked at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how Desmond Tutu framed that in South Africa to compare it with what we're dealing with today in the United States. I was having one of the third days on this show when I just cannot put words together. Unfortunately for me, yesterday happened to be one of those. But our panel was so smart in the way they talked about this that I think you'll find the show really meaningful. And I'm, I'm very happy when we get so many wonderful notes from all of you about that. So thank you uh, very, very much. All right. Um, Kevin Riley, uh, let's talk about this uh, story that the Washington Post broke that you're now reporting on at the AJC. Greg Bluestein did a follow-up piece on it. Um, Right before Sonny Perdue uh, was confirmed as Ag Secretary in the Trump administration, he had to file a, a disclosure report, of course. Uh, and although he was not required to put this following information into the report, there are questions now as to whether he should have. We all know that Sonny Perdue has been a big agriculture businessman for many, many years. Um, and he did not disclose the fact that... He bought at a bargain price a grain storage facility from Archer Daniels Midland, one of the biggest agriculture companies in the country. It may be the biggest. At what the Washington Post reports was a bargain basement price. He paid something like $250,000 for a property that was valued at $5 million. And, of course, it raises questions about a quid, possible quid pro quo when when uh, uh, he became Ag Secretary and, of course, would have to deal with Archer Daniels Midland in terms of some of the regulations, favors he might have granted to them. It's a, a fascinating story, and now uh, Democrats in the U.S. Senate are demanding an investigation, Kevin. Yeah, at the very least. I mean, it looks it looks terrible, and at the very... At the very most, um, you know, it could be there could be other implications for it. But according to the Post, the, the Archer Daniels Midland had this thing and and uh, they originally wanted four million dollars for it. And Sonny Perdue paid two hundred fifty thousand. And even that four million appeared to be kind of a you know lower price than, than what they had paid for it and other things. So, um, again, it's the same old story, which is. Doing things that don't stand up in the clear light of day, never a good idea. Audrey, um, it's going to be interesting. You're welcome to comment on the story itself because I know you are always concerned about stories that involve ethics. But also, you know, will it have an impact on his uh, desire to become chancellor of the university system? But what about the ethics aspects of this? 
Well, you know, there are multiple dimensions of ethics questions. And, you know, one um, one is just the manipulation of the market. You know, if you go back to Archer Daniels Midland, they bought that basically so they could close it and, and hurt a lot of soybean farmers in the area. And when they sold it, they basically sold it to um, Governor Purdue, Secretary Purdue, with the uh, addendum that he wasn't allowed to open it back up again so that they could maintain whatever control they had over the soybean market and so on. So, you know, in a, in a, in a way, this pro-farmer individual was supporting, you know, big corporate um, ag business um, by by buying it and, and following that contract. But there are other things that go back in his history as governor that, um, you know, suggest that there have been places where he took the opportunity of his office mm. very visibly to benefit financially um, with the help of some of our own state legislative members, right? So, again, that casts a pale over, uh, a pall over someone who is supposed to take over a huge, very important, critical part of our state infrastructure. Because one of the reasons Georgia is great is because of our university system. And I would say the support that the state legislature and governors have given it. Um, and, you know, uh, for a lot of criticism of others, one of the things we can say um, is we haven't quite seen as as much self-dealing in, in other respects from our current governor. Um, I mean, that is a benefit. So we'll see what he does, because we know that one of the reasons Purdue is considered for this is because he was the one that got Trump to endorse Brian Kemp in 2018. And that was right. a big right. give, right? Um, absolutely. Uh, by the way, Archer Daniels Midland said they made that sale at such a low price because they could not find another buyer. But Donna, here's a quote from the Post's original reporting on this. The timing of the sale, just as Purdue was about to become the most powerful man in U.S. agriculture, uh, raises legal and ethical concerns from the narrow question of whether the secretary followed federal financial disclosure requirements to whether the transaction could have been an attempt to influence an incoming government official in violation of bribery statutes, ethics lawyers say. Quote, this stinks to high heaven, said Julio Sullivan, a Georgia University law professor and former federal prosecutor. It deserves a prosecutor's attention, she added. Only a prosecutor with the powers of the grand jury can find out, in fact, whether there was a quid pro quo that existed at the time of the deal. Donna? And it's hard to imagine that it won't come under scrutiny, that we won't see a prosecutor looking at this, because it did come <laughs> right after he became agriculture commissioner. And um, and while, you know, I understand that um, ADM apparently wanted to get rid of this property and, and couldn't sell it for what they wanted, the fact that it was, I think, uh, sold for 16 times below the value that, um, that was originally, that, that its value has to make you wonder about this whole thing, why they would do that, why the timing happened like this is, uh, the Post reports it went back to 2015 when they first started trying to sell this property. It is <laughs> land in South Carolina. There has to be value to it. And for them to have bought it for um, over $5 million and then to sell it for $250,000 does not look good. And um, so I, I'm, I would be surprised if there isn't some type of ethics investigation about the whole financial disclosure or whether or not um, there should be changes to um, the way 
finances are disclosed when somebody is up for a post like ag commissioner. Adrian? I'd add to that that I'm concerned about the financial issues, um, but I'm more concerned about the ethics of the quid pro quo. So, you know, um, ADM had significant lobbying during um, the governor's term as Secretary of Agriculture. And so when we're talking about whether or not this is going to be someone who's going to run the Georgia system, and we're talking about him being um, a Trump supporter, um, arguably anti-CRT, for example, anti-science, um, you know, I'm concerned that a similar kind of quid pro quo is going to happen um, based upon who you consider to be your supporters and who's providing uh, you know, financial benefits. So we haven't heard um, from Sonny Purdue on this, um, the Post, uh, nor the AJC. Um, so let's, um, you know, allow for that. Maybe there is a good explanation, but bringing us all the way back to the beginning of this discussion, just ask yourself, is the, this behavior indicative of the kind of person you would want running the state of Georgia's university system? All right. We, we, we will watch how this story plays out. And you're quite right, Kevin. Uh, the, uh, uh, Sonny Perdue did not want to comment for the, the article uh, in the Post or to your reporters. Um, the former president of his ag business, though, did, in fact, uh, uh, talk to the Post and said, yep, we were first told that it would cost us $4 million to purchase this. So we'll wait to see and continue to follow this story as it moves forward. Uh, Kevin, while you got the ball, uh, we've already talked about one of the new laws that takes effect today, July 1st, which is the first day of the state of Georgia's fiscal year. Um, there, and, and, you know, there are obviously uh, lots of concerns about SB 202 having taken effect, and there are similar concerns about the new law, Kevin, that goes into effect today, which prevents local municipalities from reducing their police department budgets by more than 5% in a given year, um, a bill which was kind of called the uh, informally the anti-defund the police uh, a measure. Uh, Kevin? Well, I, I do think that that was um, a bit of a strange bill because uh, in part um, it was passed by obviously a Republican-dominated legislature where uh, local control is always a favorite topic. The other thing about it is no local government in Georgia followed through with any proposal to cut its police funding um, through all of that conversation of last year. So um, a little bit of red meat, I think, for the base when you get right down to it. Yeah, Audrey, um, you're out there in Athens where the Athens city government did at least have a conversation about this. So did the city of Atlanta. And those were the two municipalities that uh, Republican lawmakers used as examples of why they'd better pass this law. Yes. And I, I live down the street from the mayor, Mayor Gertz. Um, so it's something that, you know, people are talking about, but most of the time they're talking about within the context of, 
you know, how will they reinvest that money in a way that will lower crime in general, but using different methods? You know, most of the time, no, no city's going to um, defund anything. They're always looking for more resources or, or perhaps shifting resources around. So even though it was a conversation, I, I'd like to think that the people who are um, governing uh, are thoughtful and they, they know the results. We have crime in Athens and um, the police are highly valued in, in the city for what they do. Um, I would say that that bill primarily was performative um, and it is probably going to be an effective uh, piece of messaging for a strategy and a campaign. That's something we talk about in applied politics. Well, that's really important that you mention that uh, because, Adrian, Democrats, including the president of the United States, Joe Biden, are beginning to be a bit concerned that the anti-policing message, which came out of last summer's uh, uh, protests against police killings, which uh, led to justifiable outrage uh, that showed itself on the streets of cities across the country, including here in Georgia. Um, but the Democrats are concerned from a partisan perspective that uh, right now the appetite among voters across the country is not for defunding the police. They don't want to be seen as the anti-law enforcement uh, party, Adrian. Well, law enforcement, I think, is such a powerful and important political issue platform to use. But I think it's important for jurisdictions to be talking about uh, re rededicating some of these funds to decrease the kinds of things that we saw last year that caused the uprising after George Floyd. That kind of thing is still continuing. Um, and I think it's very important that I think it's unfortunate that defund the police is looked at so negatively because the point, as Audrey pointed out, is not to end the police force. It's to make sure that people have mental health support, housing, education, jobs. All of these are the kinds of things that make a community more comfortable and put people at less risk of coming into contact with negative incidents with the police. You know, and, and Donna, that's, isn't that the point? This is another issue at which reasonable people need to be able to look at openly, think about in smart ways, figure out next steps, but it just becomes a fodder for the partisan political machines on both sides of the aisle. And as a result, any effort to think through a huge problem uh, just falls by the wayside. No, absolutely. And it, it really is sad because we continue to see the need for money uh, put into other aspects of, um, for lack of a better way of saying it, policing our communities. We still see mental health issues uh, being a problem out in communities where police are brought in and um, you don't need police in those situations. And we've seen um, too many tragedies come out of those situations. And uh, we continue to see that. And, and if the conversation had focused more on that, that issue rather than just oh, uh, a feeling that it was an attack on police departments, I think things would be different. The other part of this is, you know, the, you know I, um, we covered this on lawmakers, of course, a lot during the legislative session. And the other part of this was another effort. By, we saw several of the bills that came through that focused on the Republican-controlled legislature looking to take control of um, 
some local municipalities and communi communities. We saw that certainly happen with the, um, the elections bill where the county elections boards can be replaced by state officials, that the, the state can come in and, uh, and oversee them. But this with defunding the police was another effort to say, hey, local municipalities, um, you know, you're, we're going to tell you just how much you can do how, and um, how much, you know, this 5% is your, your um, max and in terms of how much of your budget you can spend over a period of five years. And, uh, and because we can do it, we're just going to go ahead and do it. All right. Got to get to the final break of the show. A lot more to talk about in just a moment. With the uh, 4th of July holiday uh, coming up this weekend, uh, Amelia Sam and I thought, you know, what better thing to do on our final show tomorrow, Friday's show, uh, than have a discussion about freedom, American freedom and what it means. And so we're going to talk to Sebastian Junger. Uh, he, of course, became very, very well known for his international bestseller, The Perfect Storm. He uh, was a, an embedded war correspondent whose uh, documentary, Restrepo, was nominated for an Academy Award, uh, showed him in the heart of the most dangerous territory for U.S. soldiers in uh, Afghanistan. And now he's written a book called Freedom. I'm going to tell you right now, it's an odd little book, and Sebastian Younger's definition of freedom is existential at best. But that makes it, I think, all the more interesting. So join us tomorrow for our conversation with Sebastian Younger. Kevin Riley, uh, your, your folks at the AJC did some remarkable reporting that showed up in this morning's newspaper and that we're going to follow up on as you are in the day days ahead. But essentially, the headline is that uh, there is an investigation of whether Kasim Reeve, now running for a third term as mayor of Atlanta, uh, violated campaign finance laws. Uh, that's the simplest way to put it, Kevin. Yeah, it's a, a somewhat complicated bit of reporting. I'm really proud of Dan Kleppel, Wilborn Nobles, and Bill Rankin, our folks who put it together. And I'd encourage listeners to read it. But what it comes down to is a complicated court case in which in, uh, there's an attempt to have an attorney for a political candidate testify and digging through that paperwork, matching it up with uh, campaign spending disclosure forms uh, shows that it appears that uh, former Mayor Reed uh, is being investigated. So um, we'll be we'll be staying on it. And uh, it is a little bit of a complicated but very important story. Uh, the simplest thing we should say, and then we'll talk about this more uh, next week, probably on Monday's show, uh, is, uh, or on Tuesday's show, rather, is um, that there's one example of his buying furniture that was delivered to his, we think it was him, who his mother's house, something like $1,100, $1,200, but then was listed as an office expenditure on campaign disclosure reports, Right. Right. And uh, the that's where the court records and the campaign disclosure forms appear to line up and point at uh, Kasim Reed. All right. We're going to talk a lot more about that, but I do think our listeners ought to read that story if they can in the AJC. Audrey Haynes, here we go again. Ethics, one of the issues that you are concerned most about. 
Yes. And, you know, I would say that if I used any of the money that I raised to support my program to go out and buy lingerie, I think I'd lose my job. You know, I mean, that's just the way that's just the way it goes. And I, I think that's one of the things that potentially Kasim Reed was buying some lingerie. I'm not sure if it was for himself or for someone else. I don't know. But, you know, the bottom line is with campaign finance, there is some controversy, <laughs> I would tell you. Yeah, I, I had to be funny for oh, once, you know. Um, that was funny. There are some people like Alan Keyes a long time ago when running made an argument that, you know, I want to run. I'm not a, a millionaire. I want to use some of this money that's been donated <laughs> to my campaign to pay for my mortgage or for child care if you, if, you know, whatever. So there have been in campaign finance some arguments saying that, you know, we should have more flexibility with what we use that money for. But lingerie is probably not one of those. So, you know, it is a question of what the money is being used for and traveling to a resort or something like that is obviously uh, uh, not only an ethics violation, but under campaign finance law, that is illegal. Now, problematically, I will tell you that most campaign finance um, uh, law uh, is uh, rarely, rarely enforced. It's often a question of someone paying a fine. Um, and, you know, uh, I think we mentioned this before. It can, though, have an impact on how people view um, Mayor Reed and whether he uh, continues to get that support potentially or even decide to run uh, for the mayoral race again. Yeah, Adrian, I do want to point out that we're going to watch how this story develops. Kasim Reed, of course, insists he did nothing wrong. And there's no question that he will end up accusing uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution of uh, playing a role in trying to uh, 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 hurt his campaign uh, uh, for uh, mayor again. Uh, nevertheless, it comes and, and the timing is awfully bad for him. I think it's fair to say, Adrian. I think the timing is absolutely terrible. Um, especially coming off um, a former administration that had lots of issues. Um, and I think to Audrey's point that this makes people skeptical about whether or not you're going to be an effective representative for Atlantans um, as a mayor. All right. As I said, we'll watch that. And, and I think as the AJC and GPB News, I know I've talked to our people, they're going to start looking into it in more detail, too. So will uh, everybody else uh, taking the AJC's lead on this. So this story is going to get a lot more attention in the days and weeks to come. Uh, Don Lowry, I'm going to hit you with a story that uh, I didn't give anybody any advance warning on. But you know what? I know we can all handle it. I, and, and it comes out of the jolt. Uh, this morning. You know, there's all this question as to whether Brian Kemp, who has been the target of Donald Trump's wrath uh, ever since he refused to support Donald Trump's conspiracy theory about uh, a rigged election in Georgia, whether or not he was going to be able to win renomination uh, as governor of Georgia. Well, we learned overnight last night that Brian Kemp, in the last reporting cycle for campaign finance disclosures, raised, are you ready for this, $12 million. <laughs> I mean, wow. That is a staggering sum of money. And uh, pretty. I think it's going to give a lot of people pause about how vulnerable people who were waiting to see if they should jump in against him or whether they should support his campaign or not, I think it's going to be a message to a lot of people, 
don't don't uh, underestimate this guy, Donna. <laughs> no, absolutely. Wow, I I did not know that. I think it changes yeah. the conversation uh, when it comes to whether or not Herschel Walker will come in from Texas and move to Georgia. Uh, what's going on with the Vernon Jones campaign? Uh, the support from um, former President Donald Trump in all of this where it goes, that he is able, that um, the governor is able to raise that kind of money, I think changes the conversation and makes people think a lot more about what his campaign is, is really what direction it's going to go. That, that's a whopping number. Uh, Audrey? Oh, it is, absolutely. And I would say, you know, he's got a very strong campaign team. He's got a lot. He has recruited a lot of good people. And, you know, I have heard uh, from some of the people working on it that, you know, they have been very deliberate about the things that he is doing and saying, all focused on primary opposition and keeping it from emerging. So, you know, this is campaign 101 and they're doing really good and they just flexed some muscles. Uh, they sure did. Adrian, I want to add, though, to this, uh, the other side of this story. Uh, it turns out we've been telling people on the show that Rudy Giuliani was going to be making an appearance in Georgia to support Vernon Jones' bid for the Republican nomination uh, for governor. And in fact, uh, he was here last night. There was a campaign fundraising event for Vernon Jones at the St. Regis Hotel in Buckhead. And uh, Rudy Giuliani... Uh, called uh, Governor Kemp a failure and promised that Vernon Jones will be a leader for reform. And uh, so the efforts to take down Brian Kemp by the Trump forces aren't going to end, but how much credibility does Rudy Giuliani have right now, uh, even among Trump supporters in Georgia? Rudy Giuliani has very little... (laughs) Uh, traction in the state of New York, let alone the state of Georgia. Um, And I think that despite what we might think about our folks who oppose our political views in Georgia, that we are sophisticated voters. And, um, you know, your Vernon Jones, even Herschel Walker, I mean, these are going to be difficult um, campaigns when Brian Kemp uh, is already at the front of the field as a Senator Warnock. Um, I think that these folks have a lot of work to do if they expect to um, win for office. Uh, You get the last word in today's show, uh, Professor Adrian Jones. Thank you so much for being back with us today. Donna Lowry, a pleasure to have you and you as well. Audrey Haynes, Kevin Riley, we are not going to run out of things to talk about on this show or to print about politics in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. That's increasingly clear, isn't it? It sure is. Yeah. And we're looking forward to it. All right. We are really out of time for the show. Thank you all so much for being with us again. Sebastian Younger will be with us for Political Rewind tomorrow. What is freedom anyway? We'll uh, talk about that on tomorrow's show. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Uh, People are CDC. WHO is saying you better maybe think about wearing a mask again because the COVID uh, uh, variant is catching on. So do what you think is best, but the best thing is be vaccinated. Everybody take care. We'll see you tomorrow.